Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Olga Liapis Muzzy. Olga is a colleague and a friend. I invited Olga to join me for a Thinking Together episode of the podcast. So instead of a traditional interview, Olga and I engage in a conversation where we think out loud about what we're going to need to make the use of mediation and dialogue and other conflict transformation tools to be more accessible and attractive. Our ideas include systems change, self-forgiveness, changing how we think about punishment, and the value of coming to a general understanding that conflict is inevitable and it's up to us to choose how we respond. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. This episode is recorded in August of 2022. And now, please enjoy my conversation with Olga Liapis Muzzy. Olga, thank you so much for talking to me. I'm really I'm just excited to have one of our conversations and just share it with a bunch of folk as well. So it is such a pleasure to be here with you, Duncan. I feel like I have so much fun every time we talk. And so this is, it's just a total pleasure to be here with you. And hello to the listeners from the future who are joining us for this conversation today. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, everyone. So this one, we're trying to do something a little different than because our work or we're actually colleagues and we're like very much in a similar place. And so instead of me just trying to get out of you, you know, what's your cool idea for the future and how do we fix it and all these things, I want to do like a thinking together conversation and to explore a question that both is interesting to both of us and, and maybe see what new ideas we can come up with in real time and during this conversation. So as colleagues, we're both part of the DPACE initiative, the Democracy, Politics, and Conflict Engagement Initiative, and where we're bringing conflict literacy skills to organizations and that are trying to make change in the world. And we met you through being part of an organization that was trying to develop conflict literacy skills, and you came to a training, and then you learned about mediation, and you're like, this is really where it's at, and you've kind of gone all in. You've even done like, oh, you're working on a whole career shift. And so I love that new enthusiasm for mediators and people who are like, wait, this is really where it's at. But I wonder if you'd be willing to just talk about like what the experience was to be in an organization that had conflict, to think about, wow, we could really use some help. Like, like what, what was the thought process for you to be like, oh, maybe I should take this training and then you know, the, how, how did it end up 
taking over your life, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has taken over my life. It's what I talk about even at parties. So, you know, (laughs) I'm really passionate about it when it's everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Let's see. So I'm going to go back to that time in my life. I mean, so to give a little bit of personal context, I come from a family that really kind of grabbed our values. Like I think a lot of families connect their values to their religion, for example, and kind of like pull a lot of what it means to be human and how we can build a just and good society, whatever good means for each one of us. And my family didn't quite have that religious grounding, but we had kind of a political grounding that for me, for us, it was how I grew up was this idea that, you know, our government should be taking care of us and all people are equal. And, you know, that there are these ideas that are very much entrenched in kind of like my political upbringing. So when I graduated college and it was time to find a job, I landed myself in the labor movement. And so for me, I kind of grew up in terms of my career in a space that was all about fighting for rights. And yet the primary strategy that was used is a little bit of an often an antagonizing one, right? Because we kind of have this idea of like, oh, employers and employees who are in unions, it's, it's, it's a bit of a fight. And so I think this concept is really common in a lot of organizations that have kind any any type of social justice organizing spirit to them. And it's hard to do something outside that you don't then replicate inside. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed from the beginning is that in every organization that I've been a part of, there has been conflict because there's conflict is a part of our lives. <laughs> Literally. Totally. Yeah possible not to have conflict in every element, whether it's the personal, professional, and and also the task of so many of these organizations that I was a part of that I believed in is really big. So there's a lot of pressure to make these massive systemic changes to our society. That's the mission of this organization. And yet we're managing to get in our own way because of this thing that keeps happening to us that there's no way to avoid. It's just not possible to avoid conflict. So that had been in the back of my mind. It had been kind of the the world I was living in. And then, yeah, I was introduced to a mutual mentor of ours, who I know you've had on the show, Ken Cloak. And, and you know when things just enter your life at just the right moment? Yeah. You know about something for a while, and then all of a sudden you're introduced to these brand new sets of people. And so I went to a basic mediation training with Ken and just found the practicality of mediation and conflict resolution that it just is so applicable to many elements of life. And so the first element that I tried to apply it to was my family system. Because, of course, most of us have a lot of, well, at least I have a lot of conflict in my family. Sorry, family. (laughs) But it's true. And I found that I was able to, to, to experience real change inside of my family just by applying these, you know, small but big changes that I had just learned. And I found that to be so engaging that it, I immediately wondered, you know, what could, what could happen if we tried to do this in organizations too, where we mm-hmm. actually have your mission that we're trying to accomplish. 
Yeah. So, you know, there's something just like the naturalness of conflict, I find to be an important thing to remember. Like, because I don't know, I like to say it's like, as long as we're in diversity, like, we'll have conflict. We're going to have different perspectives. We're going to have different agreements. She had this really interesting example. I was just at a Starbucks in, in Chicago and I ordered my hot and I ordered my iced coffee. And, and the, iced coffees there sitting on the counter and I could see my name on it. It says Duncan on the label. So I go to reach for it. And this woman goes to reach for it as well. And I'm like, oh, I think that might be my coffee. And she's like, oh, no, it's it's mine. And 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 she's like, and I'm like, well, my name's on the label. And she's like, no, my name's on the label. So I'm like, wait, are you just named Duncan? And she's like, no, my name's whatever. And on the other side of the coffee cup was her name on the label. Right. And and I was like, oh, wow, they must have put two labels on this coffee cup, right? And so, and I was like, it was just like the best example of just like the essence of like different perspectives, right? From her perspective, it's hers. And from my perspective, it's mine. And a very valid, real perspective, right? And now maybe it's like even too simple, but, and and I think part of the reason why family gets to be a place is because they're the folks that we have to be with, that we might not have been friends with otherwise. Right. Like the relationships that we, you know, my sister works as a, you know, works with horses. She lives in Oklahoma. I, we probably wouldn't have met otherwise, you know, and so we get to be friends. We have different life experiences. And and as long as we have different life experiences, we like conflict will naturally arise. Now, of course, what part of what you learn in this training is like, well, this can be a positive experience or we can learn and grow by the benefit of diversity or it can be some like entrenched thing that is painful and pulls us further apart. And, and it's really a choice. So how do we get people to see that this is something that could be better? Because I think that we're, it gets so used to it just being really hard and kind of accepted. I don't, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that most of us don't learn conflict resolution skills in our families, unfortunately. I think what we learn is how to fight. We learn conflict skills. You know, we we adopt the patterns and the modeling that we see done in, you know, whatever access we have, whether it's directly in our family, in our schools, in our churches, in our community centers. And... And so therefore, I, I think there is this feeling that conflict is negative, that if you are fighting, that is a bad sign. And I think one of the major reframes that's made a, a big difference in my life that's come out of mediation training is the idea that conflict is neutral. Conflict is not good. It is not bad. It is a state of being. And that, in fact, we can use it to grow and strengthen our bonds. So Esther Perel talks about this in a really wonderful way the psychologist, she talks about how relationships are connection, disconnection, reconnection, that that's what a relationship is. It's that you might have, you know, the honeymoon period, whether you're in a romantic relationship or not, but where you're really clicking, everything's really good. And then you have your first moment of true disconnection. And then if you're able to reconnect, that's where the relationship continues. And in that moment of reconnection is where we actually build trust. And I, and I think that, and, and so to kind of bring it back to your actual question, which is how do we get 
more more people to give this a try. I think part of it is in believing that it is worth trying, that it is actually worth putting our energy towards reconciliation and building that trust rather than saying, oh, we're in conflict. And so therefore that must mean there's something wrong with our relationship and we shouldn't even try. Right, right. Yeah, I talked so the thing about like the repair after the rupture, you know, like the, we know like a bone and break the bone and then it heals and like that, all that counts mm-hmm. all stronger afterwards. And I like that, like when it, like the lived experience of this. So when I had that in a relationship and of course it's, it's significant in relationships. So the woman with the coffee walk away, it doesn't matter. Right. But with sure. my partner. I say something, whatever, and it's hard and it's like, oh, God, so it's weird going on here. And I'm now learned to be like, pause. Let me just find out what the heck's going on here. Let me start listening, you know, like time to listen a little bit, find out what's going on. And then I'm like, oh, OK. And so really, this is what's going on. And then that bond ends up becoming stronger because I took the time to find out something that was important. So and the, and I think the reason is. And I think conflict naturally has to do with something that's important. But if we have a feeling about it, then that means we're, it's touching something deep, right? And so if I can learn what that thing is that's deep for you, like, oh, wow, this is, you know, important. Or you're having a hard, like, had a time. Let me understand that. And so maybe the, the first layer of answering the question is getting people to recognize, one, that conflict is neutral, but that also that it's this opportunity to sort of learn and understand and actually fortify the connection, right? And to like, be like, okay, cool. So now we actually have a more clear understanding about the nature of our relationship and the nature of our experiences. And by making that be a safe experience, we'll be stronger because of it. And of course, the answer might not be yes every single time. Like, I I do think there is... When I when I when I first started dabbling in this work, my my perspective was like mediation is always the answer. We should always be mediating. We should always be trying to resolve. <laughs> and now I've cooled down a little bit on that perspective because it is very energy intensive. And so I I, I think that's the other thing to keep in mind is that it I have not <laughs> I have not had an experience yet where mediating a conflict happened like this. Because most of the times the conflicts are very long term. So even if you have a mediation, you know, the idea that a two hour mediation is going to solve a 10 year problem in those two simple hours, that's, that's a really hard equation to even out. And so it, it is energy intensive and it is time intensive. So I think there, there is a little bit this question of, do I want to put this energy into this relationship? But I think what We have a tendency, and I don't know if this is a global pattern or whether this is just one that I've noticed here in the U.S., but I certainly feel like I've noticed it here in the U.S., this this tendency to to throw people away, this tendency to label one another as, you've hurt me, that means you're a wrongdoer, that means you're a bad person, and I'm the person who's been hurt here. And one of the things that I really love also, some of these are different practices that kind of all come together to create kind of one ecosystem, right? So we've got mediation and we've also got restorative justice and a couple different kind of practices. And one thing that I feel like I've learned from restorative justice is this idea that these labels are getting in our way. There is no 
right or wrong way to human. There is no right or wrong human. There is only the reality of our actions, which is that we sometimes hurt one another. Guaranteed. And <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, anyone who can think back, I think every single person can think back in our lives. I certainly can say this about myself and think of times when I have felt like I was victimized, where I felt like I was really harmed. I can also think of instances where I harmed others. Like all of us are both wrongdoers and we're people who have been, who have received harm. And so a, a little bit what mediation asks of us is to really decide that we're not throwing any of us away. That it is more worthwhile to continue working together and figure out how to reconcile or to end the relationship in a way that is not destructive, but that to actually kind of transition into one of those two states rather than just to say, you have hurt me and so therefore I will shun you. I will, I will get, I will never engage with you again. There's a couple of thoughts about this, but I, like the first thing is like, it is okay to walk away, right? Like, like that sometimes, you know, like yeah. this is, I don't, I don't want to do this. And, you know, I'd heard you know, it's like someone like they have these housemates and then like this one housemate was just like causing all these issues. And they're like, they also know this housemate needed some healing and help and all these things. And they're like, you know, actually it's okay to ask that person to leave that. And you don't have to solve this person's life problems, but there's some relationships that we can't walk away from. You know, I would say like, you know, our, our Democrats and Republicans, sorry, y'all on the same team. You can't walk away from each other. We can't, and the process of trying to separate it out would not, it's not going to be pretty, right? Your family, you can't really walk away from family. I mean, you can, and actually it's probably healthy in certain times to give yourself a break if you need to take it. But also there's times where it's not worth it. So I'm picturing just like any organization that can be like, oh, wow, we're having this really big difference of opinions. And I've seen those organizations just decide to split into two different organizations. And it's fine, but you're really missing something because together you could probably achieve a lot more. And so this thing about time intensiveness is interesting. And Ken, I think, has helped frame this well for me as well, that you can spend the time right now or you can have the time. So a mediation is like, okay, we're going to clear our schedules. We're going to have a three-hour conversation, maybe two, three-hour conversations, and we'll be able to sort whatever this issue is out. Now, the cost of not resolving that issue, right? So you're now five years down the road. Now you hate each other. You're never going to see each other. There's a real cost to not doing it. And probably over time, it's going to take a lot more time to just continue having a conflict or to not address it or not understand it. But if you can get that time up front is important, right? But I don't know. I want to come back to the throwing away. But before that, just like flag. Yeah, like this is the other part is like, it's it's actually worth taking the time and it's actually it's not that much time, right? Mm -hmm. Like to actually slow down and have the by conversation. Comparison. Right, by comparison. By right. The amount of time that you would be spending in the future, I think that is very true. Yeah. And it'll be less time the quicker you you catch it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, oh. I think it's what you're saying right now. Yeah. I, I this is something that I really Oh, I, 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 I find this to be so incredibly important. The, 
when we engage, like so often when I am called in to help mediate something, it is usually because the conflict has gotten to just bad, it's bad levels. We are at places where people are no longer able to hear each other whatsoever. Harm doesn't even, on some level, doesn't even matter who started because everyone's been hurt at this point. And, and it would be such a different approach to bring somebody in earlier. Like, I think one of the biggest changes that I've made in my personal life is to address harm when it's teeny, teeny, tiny. It's not even capital H harm. It's like just the smallest little font in the smallest letters or even discontent or even, you know, feelings of unhappiness, like things that I can't even quite, they're, they're not even big feelings yet, but I, they're, but they're starting to build up. And I think I think there's an element here of what you're talking about, that when we wait to have the actual conversation, we're making it harder and harder for us to actually resolve it quickly or resolve it at all. So, yeah, I definitely agree that there's something here around how early is that is an intervention taking place. And the earlier that we do it, the less time that it takes in the long term. Yeah. And 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 there's a way that that is kind of true all the way across the board and it can get exponentially bigger, right? So like, wow, to deal with this issue now is going to take a lot of time because we didn't do it earlier. Okay, great. But if you do it now, it's still going to be half as much time as it's going to take to do it. You know, it's you're never going to take less time. Never going to take less time. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Right. Never going to take less time. And so then we have this option of like throwing it away or walking away, right? And okay. That becomes, I mean, if it's possible to just like really end the relationship, you know, like, like you maybe not ever need to talk to the person, right? Again, but insofar as you're in the same country or in the same family or whatever, that, that issue that's not resolved is just going to have to echo out. Like it's not, it doesn't actually get reintegrated you're like you're going to carry it as the the harm or the resentment so that's going to be a continue to be a corrosive thing in one's own life or but then also you might just be passing it on to the next generation you know like that like why is it that we don't ever talk to grandma you know and it's like oh we're not going to talk about that and it's like well guess what your kids are going to have to deal with it now or in an organization you know like you know why are we two different organizations yeah and i think one one thing that kind of helps with this or, or that I find that has helped me is reminding myself of my present moment, of what is the actual present moment? Because I think sometimes conflict feeds off of a story more than it feeds off of an actual present moment. Because we have such a big story that's been built around what's happened in our two families or in these two organizations or five organizations or whole society. And Stories have power, you know? There's a reason why media exists. There's a reason why television and theater has existed for so long. And so conflict stories also have power. But sitting down and actually looking at the present moment of saying, okay, so let's put aside the history for a moment and just where are we, who are we, and what's currently happening today? But it's really hard to do that because usually our histories is also our trauma. It's also what we care about. It's, it's just, our, our baggage in that way is really important to us. So it's very difficult to put it down, to have a conversation about just the present moment, which is why I think mediators are so helpful because 
they don't have baggage about the situation. So it's not that difficult for someone without baggage to be like, let's look at the present moment. Right. So getting a little bit of help to have those conversations really can make it much easier. But I feel like that's a big part of it is being like, can we put down the history enough to talk about what's actually happening today? Not to ignore the history. I'm not saying that. But just to say that our central point is actually about our present and our future. An example of this comes up with often in like a mediation is usually there was a miscommunication at some point. <laughs> and the person's like, I'm asking for this. This is what I would like. And like, yeah, but you said you wanted this a year ago. And the person's like, no, that's not what I said. And so I oftentimes would be like, time out. <laughs> like, if you want, we can go there. But this is lost into time, right? And so we're not going to be able to recover what was actually said. And memory doesn't work that way. It's not, we're not going to be able to remember, like it's just your memories. If you've been, th especially if you've been thinking about this a little bit, it's gotten super distorted, right? It seems like you're only really remembering your memory of the memory. And so the more times you run a memory through your head, mm -hmm. you're actually just like rewriting it. So we can figure out what it was. So right now, what is it that you would like to say, right? And now people, now that's hard because the whole reason why we're here is because of the thing that someone said back in the day. And, and that's, so that's hard to come into the present. And now hearing that, I'm also thinking though, that there's a John Paul Lederach, who was like kind of one of the fathers of conflict transformation. I think maybe even developed the whole term. He has this model that I kind of think looks like a little bit like a flower, but there's a kind of these like concentric circles kind of going out to the left and right and then concentric circles going up. And so in order to transform a conflict, you have to be able to deal with the immediate past, the remembered past, the lived past, or say the lived past, the remembered past, and then just all of the, the cultural history that's behind it, right? Like beyond. So if we have a conflict in our community or whatever, like guns or whatever United States. So it's like whatever immediately just happened. Then there's like whatever it was that's happened in your lifetime. And then whatever happened in your parents' lifetime or the people who are still alive and what the stories that they've heard. And then there's the stuff where it was like ideas that came from the origins of the constitution. So that's coming all the way in. And then on the other side, you have to deal with what do we want to do next? <laughs> and then we want to do for over the next year or two, what do we want to do over the next 10 years? And what do we want to do over the next couple of generations? And like, so you kind of need to take that into account. And then you also should take account, all right, there's you and me. Then there's like the community and organization around us, which is part of like a whole system. And then there's like, oh, that yeah. system is probably part of another system or a subsystem. So there's like, and now if you want to actually transform the whole situation, you can deal with this very specific issue. So we can deal with this, like we can in a mediation, we can deal with this issue, this topic, you know, like an interest-based conflict or context-specific solution. This is what I need now to feel good now between you and me about this topic. But if it's, you really want to change the whole thing, I'll be like, wait, wait, how do we get into this situation? What is it that took a goddess to get here? What, how do we make sure that this doesn't impact? How do we make sure that we're doing this with this better? And then how do we make sure that, that we're, taking into account like all of the deep history and the deep future and what are the systems and it becomes this whole matrix and I'm realizing there's like a contradiction here. So like on one hand, 
where do we want to deal with right now? And we can simplify it. And then you can't ignore the bigger piece. And anyway, this is where it gets more time intensive. And actually, it's funny. I just talked to someone who con called me and, and they had a conflict and the discrimination experience and they filed a complaint and then they're going to enter into some sort of formal process and then they get to have a mediation. And now the person's trying to figure out, do I want to have a settlement? And just like, you know, I don't ever get to talk about it again. They gave me some money and the issue disappears. Or do I want to make sure that this never happens to someone again? And if you want to make sure it doesn't happen to someone again, you're going to have to engage with this person, not as an enemy, but as a ally and figuring out how to change it. And realizing like, this might take years of my life to get this whole thing changed. I don't know if I want to do that. And again, we have the choice, but. And also I shouldn't have to, I feel like is the other feeling, right? It's like, I'm the one who's been hurt. I shouldn't have to put the effort in. And I feel that to the core of my bone, <laughs> my bones, you know, cause I just, I on one level agree and also that's not our world and our reality. Right. The reality is that it actually takes both people in order for healing to happen. Unfortunately, I wish the world worked differently, but I have yet to see an instance, and perhaps they exist, but most of the time for that profound change to happen that you're talking about, which is that this thing does not happen again, it does take healing on both sides for that to happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's a hard pill to swallow. There's like a quote that I love because it's so provocative. If you're not part of the problem, you can't be part of the solution. And there's like a variation of it where it's like, you know, if you think it's a problem, you're responsible for fixing it. I see trash on the ground. I don't know how that trash got there. I'm angry about it. Well, guess what? It's my job to pick up the trash, right? If I don't care, I can just walk on by. But if I care, I can't be like, let's get a video camera and find out who dropped this here and we're going to go hunt them down and drag them here and have them pick up. Nope. So I'm going to connect this back to the throwing away, right? Because I think that this starts pointing to like one of the core problems we're going to have to figure out how to deal with is like, I'm in a situation and oftentimes when people are thinking about conflict, they're like, I'm the good person and this other person's the bad person. And in my experience as a mediator, I haven't ever met someone who is just the good person, only the good person, this person, the bad person. They're always both good people dealing with someone acting poorly. And so whether people know it or not, and like going, engaging in this process is going to ask you to recognize your role in the situation and be able to like engage with the other person and like, okay, I'm, we're going to have to work on this and figure out how this needs to change includes the admission of having some responsibility for it. And that's vulnerable and hard. And so it's easier to become the good guy and all this other person's just gone and we can make this person disappear, then, then it'll be better. And, and that's, of course, like we're seeing this happen. Like this is like one of our like cultural issues, right? Around cancel culture or whatever we want to call it. And what it seems to me is that if I'm not willing to admit that like I'm part of it and I just want to make sure that the other person is the only problem and I'm nothing to do with the problem, this has to do with like an internal experience of self-forgiveness. Because as we were saying, we're all guaranteed to harm people at some point. And if I can't admit that, then I don't know, like 
this is hard work to admit that, right? And and the easiest way to avoid, like, if I have to hold on to the idea that I'm in, infallible, then there'll be a cognitive distortion that I have to kind of change the world around me to be like, well, the problem is clearly those people are those people. It takes a lot of mental energy to keep that story up. It does. <laughs> Sometimes I think that that might be like a little bit what's behind the QAnon whole thing is that if you have to begin with the assumption that America is perfect and infallible and that we're all good people, like then the only way to understand why there's like all these problems of the world is for some sort of crazy cabal to be controlling the levers behind. And like there, there's the bad guy, because if it's not all of us that are the problem, there, there must be someone out there. And then you have to go find that person and then you have to figure out how to understand it. And I think part, I, 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 like an element of this is also, I feel like this is where punishment comes in. Because it's like, if I admit that I am a bad person, then I will be punished. And I think this is an inherent just challenge with our justice system. And just talk about challenges in our systems. We have many of them. But this is, I think, a profound one that we haven't figured out. I have this idea, which is gentle accountability, which is just, you know, being profoundly gentle with one another as we look at a situation and look at the harm that's happened. But I think what we have this tendency to do is, you know, again, a part of the throwing away people is also saying, okay, well, if you've done something wrong, then you deserve to be punished. But that keeps us from admitting that we've done something wrong. Right. And it's in the admitting that we are always capable of doing harm at any moment we are capable of doing harm and there is no way to erase that i think i think we sometimes i I see this as a lie to ourselves maybe other people see it differently but i think sometimes we lie to ourselves by saying that perhaps we can get rid of harm in the world someday and i just don't actually believe that that's possible i think the only thing that's possible is to set up systems that allow us to quickly heal from harm right but it isn't actually possible to eliminate harm in the world. There's nothing that we can do to get rid of that. That is a part of our natural cycle. And that is a part of what it means to be alive. But that, are we making it harder or easier for us to heal afterwards? And I think right now our society is making it much, much harder. Definitely. I think that there's like something in the criminal justice system or in this justice process that is kind of has this potential to sort of unlock some really interesting conversations. First of all, justice has its own tension built into it. If you too much justice becomes unjust and too little justice becomes unjust, right? And then we have a system that's like really wants to sort of like throw away people that are the trouble. And then we also are very concerned about people who are getting thrown away for reasons that aren't really valid and having their whole lives ruined forever. And, you know, in this system, there's like an illusion or this idea that like, here's what happened. You did something wrong. Here's a just punishment. And now you did your thing and now you're done. Right. Like, and when people get out of jail, it seems to me that there should be a celebration, you know, and they're like, welcome back to society. Thanks for doing all that hard work you did there. What lessons would you like to share from time for reflection? And and here's the like of money to help you get back on your feet. And how can we help you get a job? And welcome back. Instead, it's like you're out in the street, you're no money, you're nothing, you lost all of your relationships. You have to put it in every job application, put it all these things. And it's like, wait a minute, 
But didn't the person already do their work? But that is happening like on a systemic level and we're, and no one's talking about it because no one wants to be the politician who's like, I think we should really take care of criminals, you know, because our media would just rip that person apart. But what does that mean for each of us that are like stepping on each other's toes, making mistakes? And there's not really an incentive to make amends because there's not really any culture of forgiveness right now. I think that culture of forgiveness is really hard. Just reading this article is like school board in San Francisco something and the head of the school board said some stuff that people were like some racist and she was like, wow, I'm sorry about doing that. And like, I'm thinking about it and I'm doing making my amends. And they're like, no, you should be fired. You should never be in this ever again. And it's like, Okay, is there enough of an apology that can have people be forgiven? And if that's not true for other people, then is that not true for you? Like, are you not willing to forgive your own self? Right? I mean, I wouldn't be able to like function if I felt like I needed to continue to be making amends for harm I've done. Well, inevitable. Again, you know, if, 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 if something is inevitable, my belief is we should figure out how to live with it, not figure out how to get it out of our lives, because that is a losing battle. But I think you are onto something that, there that it like the core of it is forgiving ourselves. I don't know who said this quote. I did learn it from Ken. Ken, you're getting a lot of shout outs. <laughs> <in this podcast. laughs> I don't know who the original author is, but it's that forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past. So it's like this idea that we actually can't change the past, that we can hang on to what we wish had happened to us, what we wish had been different, but that that is energy. I mean, the question ends up beginning, ends up being, is that energy that you want to put towards it? But when we are able to actually forgive ourselves, then the ability to forgive others opens up. But that if we haven't done that for ourselves, it's going to be really diff difficult to do that with anyone else. And then I think this is where the systemic to the individual starts coming in. Because in my analysis, I think the way that we change systems, because our systems are just as alive as we are. Systems are made up of a bunch of individuals <laughs> living on this planet together, in this universe together. And... Every moment that we change as individuals, that means our system is also changing. It's just that we don't feel it unless there's a large enough number of people who are changing the same way because the system has so many different parts to it and is so complex. But I just, I've wondered, I've asked myself at times before, what would it look like if our, like if our school system, and I, and I don't mean our, just whatever thing that everybody went through. So one of the things that everybody goes through is school. And so what if one of the things that everybody went through in our society is a process of figuring out how to forgive yourself? Like what monumental change would that be if we started, had systemic change implemented into our individual change, excuse me, implemented into our actual system so that large number of people could go through it at the same time? Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, that would require such a massive change of how we use our resources and how we use that time together in community. Right. Well, and, you know, just like a, 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 one of the... I think that like Christian church was holding that down for a long time, right? And yeah. there's like, everyone's a sinner and there's a path 
to be redeemed and it's leaving, whether it's going to confession or whether it's believing that Jesus has already sorted that out for you. So there's like a process, right? Here's what happens when you make a mistake. Here's what you do. Here's how you get out of it. Now you're done. You're back into the fold. And so in our secular world, we like don't see, we don't seem to have like that mechanism in which to do that, right? So coming back to like the justice thing, we think that the system is like not working here. Like these people need to be forgiven. These people shouldn't be forgiven. Like being able to surface that contradiction, I think is there's this like some opportunity there to be able to be like, wait a minute, what, when would that be? Like, when is that enough? And and you're really on point about just like, this is like such an interesting multi-scale issue, right? Because the U.S. has done some horrible things in its history. I mean, and, and before it was even a country and the individuals have done the different things. What would it take for the forgiveness to happen, right? Or to have there be enough of an amends or reconciliation to be able to say, okay, you know what? Wow. Super sorry for taking over your country. Sorry for like blowing up your whole thing. Sorry for enslaving all these people. Sorry for wiping out indigenous populations. And as I heard someone saying that the critique of reparations was that if my sense is that if we had huge reparations thing, like every descendant of an enslaved family was, was given $200,000 and Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden and Donald Trump and all get on their knees and they cry and they say apologies and we build a monument to, to reconcile reckon all these things and we, and everyone gets a free college education. We would be like, Oh, cool. Racism's over. No problem. We're all good. And it's like, no, people would be like, well, this is just the beginning, <laughs> you know? And really, oh. So how do we actually heal from it? But I think the other piece about we're all just, the system is just made up as, as a, us as individuals is that at least my hope is that like, if I'm able to sort of become a model of someone who's willing to admit the harm that I've done, forgiven myself, and I get to live into that freedom I don't know, maybe I can make it look good for other people and maybe they want to <laughs> have the same experience, right? Like, and yeah, I do think modeling has a lot to do with it. And that's, <sighs> sometimes I just marvel at what it really means to try to be a mediator. So for any of our other practitioners out there who are listening, I don't know if this is something that you go through, but sometimes I'm like, dang, I really chose something that just demands, <laughs> like, I how can I, how can I try to, can create a container of healing if I'm not actively healing myself and if I'm not actively healing my community and my family. There's like a, a demand that in order for this thing to work, that you're actually engaging inside of it. And so I have really asked myself, how do you, how do you create containers that allow for true healing to happen? And I think one part of it is looking at it non-judgmentally, looking at what has happened, looking at the present moment and looking at the history without placing blame. That there's this action of looking and analyzing non-judgmentally, which is so, we do not have a practice of doing it. And this is what makes me feel very scared about critical race theory and this idea that we shouldn't talk about, we shouldn't talk about our history in a way that is really honest with young people and is age appropriate but truthful in the sense of what actually happened and the impact that it had on people that continues to this day. I find this to be really scary because I think step number one is looking at it. But 
I also think the reason why these communities are so afraid and why so many people are truly afraid to look at our history is because there is a fear that it can't be done not judgmentally. That you, as an individual, in this case, let's say an individual white person, will be held accountable for something that you believe you did not singularly do. But I, I think the practice here is saying this is not about creating blame in this moment. There will be accountability. And count we're on this path towards accountability. But that blame is not, does not actually have to be a part of this process, that it can actually be looking at the full picture and then each one of us saying, where do we see ourselves inside of it? And there's something so much more powerful about somebody being able to look at a scenario and say, oh, wow. Like, I think back on my family history and I think to myself, okay, so what did my ancestors gave me? Gave me a certain amount of stability and gave me a certain amount of my needs are being able to be met in real ways at this point in my life and also caused a certain amount of harm in the process of doing that to other people. And so for me to live a full life now, I need to acknowledge that. And is there something that I can do to repair that? There's just so much power when people choose that for themselves, which requires us to look at it without blame first. That is completely missed when we force people mm -hmm. to do that. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like this thought about how many things that they were like not going to talk about or not going to address because we don't trust how other people are going to handle it, right? Like that's an interesting thing, right? And the next layer is that like blame is a way that people tend to handle things. So we assume that if people are going to use blame or they're going to try to scapegoat someone for whatever it is as a response, then it's tricky to bring up whatever topic, right? And then the response to the blame is now I've been blamed. Now, like, if I haven't felt with, like dealt with it for myself yet, then it's, it's actually painful and really hard for me to receive that. And, and now that we've already started the process, might as well just throw it back at you. And now we're re-perpetuating like the situation, right? And so my, on my father's side, my roots go to Georgia and my ancestors were officers in the civil war for the confederate side and definitely owned slaves and i got to hear my grandmother talk about how her grandmother how they're really nice to their enslaved humans that they had or whatever you know compared to other people i don't know and now we're still the good guys <laughs> totally yeah guys right that's like what Exactly, exactly. And because we're all still the, and so as, you know, it was a journey for me. It was about a decade, about almost two decades ago now that I really had to face what it meant to be just like a white male with privilege and class privilege and being a U.S. American and, you know, just like being, having all the privileges. And I wanted to say that it's not fair, da, 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 da. like, are you sure? And so I had great people in my life who loved me and were able to say, yes, Duncan, this is worth looking at. It's worth paying attention to. So instead of like when I got accused of being some white guy with too much privilege, I didn't know what he was doing and just stomping around, which I was doing, like my initial reaction was like, shut up. Well, come on. I'm trying to help out here. I'm trying to do good things. And, you know, I wanted to do that. But instead I had to go, no, no, no. And so I had done some work on that and I've done the work on my whiteness and I've done work around being a man and, and all, whatever, all the pieces. And so now if someone's like, Hey, 
your family owned slaves, you know, and you're like, yeah, you have privilege from that, or you have privilege from being a man. I'm like, oh yeah, this is such a really interesting topic. And let's listen. He, I want to hear more about it. I can tell you what town they were in. I can let's. And so now it doesn't matter to me. I've worked on it. I know what's going on here. I maybe someone will bring something up that I hadn't thought about yet, and now I'm ready to be like, huh, interesting. But so I'm like, I'm. Teflon because I've done the work myself. So someone can just like throw all of the things at me. And if I hear something that I'm like, I haven't maybe processed yet, I know now I'm like, okay, this is great. Let me just let, let's pull that part out. I hadn't thought about that before, you know? And again, this is like long, slow work, but and the sooner you deal with it, the better. This is like that thing again, right? And the issue is that we haven't figured out how to do it systemically, right? Because we're not going to accomplish systemic change by a random assortment of white folks, <laughs> as good as it is for us to look at our history and understand it, we're not actually going to accomplish systemic change if that's not happening on a broad, massive scale. And we're reshuffling resources and we're rethinking our society and we're really getting down to taking care of all of our basic needs. And, and I think that's where sometimes I feel even the kind of like the push, right, of even inside of the left of like, well, how are we taking it from this individual level to this systemic level of how are we actually going from, I feel different and I see this differently than I did before. And that is meaning a different life for this generation of people, those of us who are still alive now and those who will be alive in the future. Yeah. Well, because you've been talking about the systemic piece a bit, and there's like, and, you know, so you mentioned idea, first of all, just like education, you know, like, you know, like, can we teach some of the skills around communication, forgiveness to young humans, right? Now, that's one layer. There's another layer of, like, what I was thinking about when you were talking was organizational a cause that someone's like, okay, this is something that's really important. Like, what would it be like for an organization to sort of recognize, we recognize that we're part of the issue, like, and we want to like, engage with our enemies, you know, and then actually, why don't we use this within our organization, you know, like, and, and so there's, I don't know, it seems like that we can, uh, John Paul Lederach also talks about like what he calls like the, the, the strategic middle, <laughs> because like, if you go to the top, there's like too few people at the top. So you can't just have like the president and be like, we're going to start forgiving each other. No one's going to care. Right. And then if you try to get all 350 million, you know, us Americans to forgive themselves, it's probably going to take longer, too long. <laughs> so, but you can find the folks that are kind of like on that in between space and organizations to have that like kind of in between space of like, we're going to take a different approach to this. And so instead of just blaming the Republicans or blaming the Democrats for whatever the problem is that we're dealing with, right? We're going to blame the protesters or we're going to blame the, the instead be like, huh, you know, let's figure out how we can work with each other. And, and which is kind of like the whole idea of like the D-Pace initiatives, like kind of change theory is a little bit is like within an organization, if you get people to realize that they're going to have to, that they can benefit and like, from learning about their conflict and effectively managing it, that they might then start realizing that the way that they're dealing with the conflicts that they're trying to be in, <laughs> like might uh, have a different approach. Yeah, the other thing that's coming to mind for me is this question of 
So we're able to do it on the individual level. Let's say that we are really able to get people to look at our histories, look at our present moment, decide not to throw one another away, even though we've caused harm, and say that we want to live in a future that's different from that. Okay, we're able to do that on the individual level. Then I feel like the question ends up being, what is our actual sphere of influence? Because if we can convince an individual person, or not even convince that this individual person can have this realization of, yes, this is the kind of experience and world that I want to live in, then the question is, okay, well, what access do you have to create change inside of your immediate community? And I think that is one place where organizations do actually have a lot of access. We do get more access when we build organizations. We increase our resources profoundly when we work together. We increase the access that we have to people because we have more people working together. So that 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 sphere of influence question is, I think, one that is sometimes missing because it's like, oh, okay, if you're doing the individual work, that's enough. But it's like, mm, what if we combined the individual work along with, okay, well, now what decision-making capability do you have? What What access do you have that maybe somebody else does not have that you could actually use? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was like an interesting podcast about like how much impact do we have if I recycle or if I turn off the lights in the other room or whatever. And like it's like individually, it's like pretty much zero. <laughs> like you, nothing you do is actually going to make a difference on the thing. But if you live in an apartment building and you can get the apartment building to recycle or get the hallway lights to turn off, now you got something that you can really make some change. And like that actually makes a difference. And so, you know, hearing this made me think like, okay, where do I have access? And I'm like, so I'm in the leadership group of an organization called Thrive. And we make decisions. We, we tend to just have consensus because we all kind of trust each other. And, you know, like, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it, you know? And, um, but every once in a while we have to vote on something and, and, that's what I've been noticing. I'm like, why are we voting? I don't actually believe in like the, I think voting is like the lowest form of democracy because it creates a situation where 50% of the people don't like something. Like, why don't we try to make a different option here <laughs> that more people might be into? Yeah. And, and yeah. so I've been, you know, working on like helping us have a consensus process that, that, that is focused on integrating dissenters, right? So, Instead of trying to be like, okay, does anyone have any concerns about this? And you're like, I do. I didn't think this is an issue. Okay, cool. How would you change this? That would help you feel more comfortable. And and that idea of like, and now again, it's it's kind of me taking my values and then like and like this kind of perspective and amplifying it into now the body of eight people, right? So we're not making huge scale choices. So then I wonder, like, if you happen to be part of like an organization that had thousands of people in it, hypothetically, you know, like, how might you introduce, you know, this to that, that larger space? Yeah, how would you introduce it to that larger space? Oh, I mean that, I, I feel like that's also a part of what organizing is. You know, organizing is figuring out who, what is your problem? Who do you need on your side in order to solve this problem? And so, I mean, we build, the thing with hierarchy 
I feel like it's the go-to for practically every single organization. <laughs> Occasionally, there are some collectives that really work on consensus, but I feel like most organizations have a certain amount of hierarchy. And the reason that we have hierarchy is because it, it certainly moves things much faster. There's a clear protocol. There's clear decision makers. You know, it, it, things move much, much faster. And yet that creates so much bureaucracy that creates so much barriers to conversation. And it also creates gatekeeping, you know, where all of a sudden one person ends up being the, the, the key to whether this policy change can happen inside of an organization. And I think one challenge to all of us working in organizations is how to deconstruct our hierarchies, not to the point where we are immobilized, because we organizations have really important missions that they're trying to accomplish. And a lot of these are on a really short timeline. Like when you think about the climate crisis, we don't have a lot of time to make dramatic changes. So, you know, and, and most organizations, I think that's that's the that's the case with their missions, even if they're not related to climate change. So how do we deconstruct hierarchy enough so that we're eliminating these negative side effects of hierarchy and also allowing for some amount of speed? And my current theory, come back to me in a few yeah, years and we'll yeah. see if this stays the same. <laughs> my current theory is that it's a combo effect, that I think if we can figure out how to better streamline a use of both consensus and hierarchy for short-term speed-oriented projects or elements of the organization, I think there's something there in allowing us to be able to affect that kind of change that so often gets blocked by hierarchies. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, like, you know, flag that we're, like, specifically talking about hierarchies of, like, power and decision-making, right? You know, someone was like, all hierarchies are a problem. And yeah, they're actually really natural thing. I was with the example I gave was like, I make the best French toast in this house, right? Like, you know, and so I'm the one who makes the French toast. It's a, it's a natural hierarchy. Yeah, whatever, you know, I can show you and you could maybe get better than me. It's not, you know, but, but. It's not stagnant. stagnant. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but the hierarchies of power, right? And they're useful, especially to consolidate decision making or decentralize because it's efficient. And, and you can keep it clean and, and we're dealing with like urgent situations, right? So, and, and we're doing the urgent situations like, you know, like climate change and, you know, like we need to find an, like a solution to this now. And then as we were talking about before, there's like, takes some time to actually talk it through and figure out how do we get all these people on board, all the different folks, right? We need to like, you know, it's like, and it's tempting to skip that, be, you know, the slower time intensive experience because it's urgent. But if you yeah. don't do it correctly, then you're still going to have to deal with the issue, right? And yeah, yeah. To your point earlier, you're going to pay for it in the, the future, future, right? And so, okay, we got to do something about this. Maybe the time is already passed. If we already might be past the point of no return when it comes to to dealing with the climate crisis, right? So who knows? But let's say that okay, we're going to take five years <laughs> to get like a really thoughtful conversation that includes the energy industry, includes the environmental things, includes indigenous peoples, includes all the different citizens, includes 
you know, and we're going to, and it's going to take a really long, slow, deliberative, thoughtful process. But at the end of five years, we will have something that everyone's on board with and that we can implement collectively and, and people are going to be excited about. Well, five years, are you kidding me? We don't have time for that, right? And it's like, okay, yeah. the other option then is let's, let's move this way a little bit and just kind of force the, you know, like force it down while we have these people in power and then like, let's force it over here a little bit. And then guess what? New leadership comes along or you have some sort of dictatorships to, you know, like where, like we have someone who's just like, yeah. I'm the climate dictator. Here's what everyone's doing. You have to do this. You got to turn those lights off in your room, you know, whatever, you know, everyone, and you got the police are coming to bust you if you aren't recycling or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. Right. And yeah. well, guess what's going to happen then? You're going to have total resistance. You can have people fighting back. Cause like, I didn't agree to that. I don't know if I have, you know, and so yeah, there is like, you pay for it now or you pay for it later. So I'm something about this like combo package that I think is helpful. And, and I kind of imagine like, we have a representative system, right? And we have people that have the decision-making power for my city, my region, my state, my country, right? And if that person could take the time to actually gather information and perspectives using thoughtful, deliberative dialogue processes and conflict resolution process, consensus building, right? So, oh, wow, this sounds like a really tricky issue. Let me take it to the people. Bring in the facilitator. Let's get a sample of the population. Let's figure it out. Let's talk to the different groups. Let's talk to the different organizations. Let's get them to talk to each other, right? And, you know, come up with a solution between them. It's going to take a, a bit of time. And then when I'm ready, I feel like I've gotten all the information as the representative, elected representative, write up the bill, put it to a vote, and on, here we go. Like, so there's like that kind of combination of like making sure that people who have formal power are just informed by slow deliberative processes. Like that could be a really interesting thing, right? Like kind of to bridge that, yeah. And what I would add to that idea is also, because the, then the second challenge ends up being is that we're constantly changing. And so even if you've taken five years and you've managed to do it beautifully, whatever outcome you have in that moment might have a new element to it as soon as a month later. And that element now is central and is incredibly important. And so even when we write policies or even when we come up with solutions, the truth is that no solution is going to be consequence-less. Every solution is going to cause another problem. It just is. <laughs> Our systems are too complex at this point for that not to be a reality. And so a question for me ends up being, how do we make it iterative and responsive and less rigid of like, okay, now here's a policy and we've passed it and therefore we must follow through on exactly what this is. It's like, hmm, how can we continue assessing whether we have solved the problem that we defined so nicely, whether the problem itself has changed or whether there are new consequences that we were completely unaware of that are now in the mix that we mm -hmm. want to be responsive to. Yeah, this is, yeah, like the, the, this is like the other aspect of being part of like a system, right? It's like we have to change things on the systems level, but we also... Any complex system or a wicked problem is like a way that people talk about this. Like, 
every change we make is going to have an impact on the system and then and and then we're going to have to do another one and and every and what's more is the person who made that decision or chose to do this thing is now responsible and so we have this culture of no forgiveness and whatever like we get ourselves like in this like yeah. loop because like i don't want to be the person who tries to come up with the once and for all solution and then i'm gonna be held accountable for it when i know that no one's really gonna know if this is gonna work or not because no one's ever tried it before like it's not a really it's not a good situation for people to actually try things out so there's like maybe like some part of the like that iterative ongoing process where it's like instead of saying we're gonna sort this out in the end of the 22 election 2022 election or the end of 2024 like then it's all gonna be done and we're gonna get this bill passed and now it's, we're all completed what if we just started admitting that like y'all this is gonna be going on for the rest of our lives and our children's lives and well and like, so instead of trying to figure out what's the outcome, like, how do we just make this system be able to keep on integrating the things, responding quickly when we need to, but then like rechecking, you know, like, how did that work? Is this helping? Okay, well, that didn't work. Forgiven. Onwards to the next thing, you know, like, let's try it again. And this is where Ken talks about like conflict resolution systems design, which is like, and like, how do you get a system to like, to be in a constant state of adaptation? And I'm just going to some shout out to like, the constitution actually really does set up a really interesting, iterative problem solving system, right? Like it's, and it's worked for a long time, right? As I get, now there's here we go. We're gonna have a new election. We're gonna have balances of power. You know, da 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 da. We have this court that's gonna like keep on reviewing things and jurisprudence and start accumulating a bunch of wisdom. They didn't anticipate whatever, you know, social media and polarization and all these things that you know that weren't. But you know, like the system, we're not gonna find the final solution. We're not gonna. And so, anyways, there's something about the like forgiving themselves for like if I try, and doesn't work. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Then just try the next thing. And and even if it does work, it's only going to address this issue. And I used to joke about like increasing shades of adequacy. I was like, it's all we're going for. This is inadequate. This is a little more adequate. Okay, now it's a little more adequate. But no one wants to buy my increasing shades of adequacy. So <laughs> they want solutions. <laughs> yeah. I know. And you know, when I first like, Right after that basic mediation training that I described that I did with Ken, I developed a little spreadsheet for myself because I'm a little bit of a data nerd on my own, in my own little way, where I was like, I want to track every mediation that I do. I want to, I want to know if it was resolved or not. And I had this, this column in my spreadsheet that was literally that binary, was it resolved or not? And it did not take me long to realize that this is the wrong question. <laughs> It is not, it is not an answerable question. It is not a binary of is it resolved or is it not? It is just, have you developed enough of a practice that this is getting resolved right now? And are you able to use what you learned in the process of resolving this conflict to resolve right. this one? Because it's like, to bring it back to your earlier point of, you know, 
how do we heal from something as big as racism, for example, or slavery in this country? It's, we're never humans. We have this tendency towards dominance. We have this tendency towards, can I, can I dominate you? Is it possible for me to take care of my needs? It is a relationship that has been common throughout all of our history. And so even in the instance, and I wish that we reach this level inside of our history or inside of our future, even if we are able to reach this moment where we're able to have a moment of true accountability for what has happened historically in this country, I do not believe that we will get, be guaranteed that it won't happen again. I believe we will be, it will be possible for it to happen again if we don't figure out how to keep taking the practice of nonviolence. And that's where I think nonviolence comes in, because nonviolence is the, is the opposite of that dominance. Nonviolence is saying we are both equal, we are both valuable, and no matter my, the choice that I am making is to uh, see your humanity and see it as equal to mine and that I won't take violent, violent action against you. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, there's like the acknowledgement of in that of like, like we're bound up with each other, right? Like, it's, and, and I choose not to perpetuate like the harm, you know, in the in my response to this, right? And this is the part that I've been thinking about. It's like, that's like a choice that we have to make that like, I want to be angry with you. And I kind of want you to feel the hurt that I feel right now. And that would really be satisfying. <laughs> yeah, really just like, make you just like shred you apart. Yeah, like let me figure out the words that I can tell you. They were just really. I am hurting. So they're totally. and and that's it's compelling and I get it and and I actually got a chance to be really and I haven't had a lot of anger in my life. I think I probably just suppressed it, but I got to feel a lot of anger about some old story and I was like, I wanna go and just like tell the person just like really shred them apart and I'm like, but god damn it, I'm like actually smart enough to know that that's not gonna help. And yeah. Oh, come on. Let me just write the really mean letter, you know, and I'm like, nope. And I'm like, and, and so I'm actively making the choice of all I, I want to actually heal this. And that means that I can't respond with it, you know, like, and I can't bite back. And I don't know, there's something about like, as a country, like, by choosing to be a diverse, pluralistic, with all the religions and all the people from backgrounds and all the different countries and all the different states, the melting pots, the whole thing we got going on. Like, that means that we're choosing to say, we're not going to try to win with our best idea or have it look just the way I want it to look. I'm actually open to exploring other possibilities with you. And but that's a choice that we have to keep making because our natural built-in tendency is to just want to hang out with people who look like us and think like us and act like us and 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 avoid all those other people. So it's like a, it's a human thing to be like I I don't trust those other folks over there. I don't trust these folks over here. I don't I don't think they should have any power because I trust me and I trust my and but we're actually making a choice to and we have to keep making it. And then, of course, that's where the risk is, is because if that 
if the essence of that choice doesn't get passed on, you know, like, like, or the wisdom of it, like, then it's really easy to just be like, oh, yeah, no, what I don't know. Uh, why, why would I ever want to get along with these people? And it's like, well, because there's actually a ton of benefits. We benefit so much by our diversity mm -hmm. and our, and yeah, yeah, I don't know. Exactly. We do benefit. I mean, I think about, I just look back in my, in my own work inside of organizations and the more diverse the team that I worked on, if we were truly able to actually resolve conflict and accomplish our goal, it was always better. I mean, you know, there's the, there's the, there's even a few experiments that have been done on this, you know, how you can ask a question, the jelly beans in the jar, you know, the, the community in total will have a more accurate guess than one random person will have. It, it, it we're collective. We're, a, we're, we're meant to mm -hmm. be in the community. And so I, I think we have so, so much to learn from one another when we're different. And and also, I do think that's where the answers to our complex solutions are. I think every problem that we have in the world, a solution already also exists in the world. It's just that we don't have the capacity to collaborate at a large enough scale that we can mm -hmm. connect those two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's. Yeah. And it's like such a, it's such a great paradox, right? That there were like both it's one of the big my kind of life project questions is like okay if we can resolve conflicts between two people we can resolve conflicts between 10 people and 100 people like what would it look like for us to resolve conflicts between a hundred thousand a million or a billion people right and and it's a cool question and and the fact that it is a fractal and kind of actually looks similar in all scales, I mean, it's like, oh, we're going to have to break the bigger ones into smaller pieces, right? And that there's like that, like, because th there's actually, the, but there's a lot of clever ways to do this. And, and we can get like a representative sample of it, right? You know, or, or so that, I think this piece about like starting where you are, like where do you have access or where is your sphere of influence? You know, because if you can start making these kinds of changes in an organizational level or in a community level, right? Or, you know, in a city level, then. Yeah, it's like, just like, you know, it's a light bulb. It's like, I don't, I don't have any individual impact and yet there's nothing here but individuals, right? I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I want to share my Alexander Solzhenitsyn quote, which is like one of my favorites, and it's just been up for me this whole conversation. I'm curious, any, any things that you're like loosens that you want to sort of loop into this conversation? And obviously, we can continue thinking together. Not totally perfectly it. It's from the Gulag Archipelago. It's about the... People getting sent off to the gulags in the Soviet Union. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, wouldn't it be great if there were evil people in the world committing evil deeds and all we had to do was separate them from the rest of us and all of our problems would be solved.
But the truth is that the line between good and evil cuts through each of our own hearts and no one is willing to cut away a piece of their own heart. When we're tempted to like use the blame or try to separate or like be like, these people are too far gone. Like it's worth remembering that well, you actually can't get rid of them. <laughs> the sooner you talk to them, the better. And and if you're afraid that there is possible for people to make mistakes and be totally irredeemable, check in with yourself. You know, like because that that there's probably some dark inner some inner conversation that might be worthwhile having. A hundred percent, and. And there's definitely something there for all of us to learn from. Like if, if you are, if there's an aversion there, like whenever I look to myself, whenever I'm the most like, oh no, I don't want to do that. It's because I, we get defensive because there's a, an element of truth. <laughs> that's the thing about defensiveness that comes up when we actually connect with something that's being said to us. And so that's the thing that I keep reminding myself. It's just like, it is worth it. It is worth it, even though, it's energy consuming, you know, it requires energy, it requires attention, but it is, it is worth it because on the other side is the possibility for the mm -hmm. world that we actually want to live in. Yeah. Yeah. That's really just like, yeah, listening to those little whispers of the heart, the pinges of regret, the pinges of pain, the pinges of like, yeah. you know, glee and, and, and fear and like, that's probably something really worthwhile paying attention to and whatever. And if we see other people having those feelings too, like it's just a great time to listen, man. It's like, why are these people doing this? Why are they smashing the Capitol? Why are they burning down Nordstrom's? It's like, I oh, probably should go ask them because I bet they have a good answer for you. <laughs> like, probably something that's really important to them is, is, yep. is at, at stake here. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. The opposite of judgment is curiosity. And that is one of the just most tangible tools that we have is asking questions and just opening up a curious mind instead of deciding mm -hmm. that you already yeah. know what the answer is. Yeah. So if you take nothing else away, folks, <laughs> from mediation, it is that questions yeah, are good. Is great. <laughs> it's really important. And, 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 even more than listening is actually helping the person know that they've been heard. You know, like, like reflect, I know this was like a lesson you learned about like that reflective listening of like, okay, why don't you say back to the person what you just heard them say? And that's going to clarify, you know, but if you could tell someone back to them exactly what it is they said, you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to really believe in it. But if you could say it back to them, like that, that opens up a huge door. That's, yeah. I mean, that's empathy. And empathy is, is it's, it's one of those magic ingredients of healing. Being understood and having the experience of being heard and being understood allows us to then be more open to other people's perspectives. Once we feel truly understood, that's when the barriers are more likely to come down and we're more likely to say, okay, I feel taken care of now, which allows me to have enough spoons and enough capacity to actually hear you and your pain. Because my pain has been attended to even a little bit, even if it's not fully, we're not done yet. But even that tiny little bit gives us so much more capacity mm -hmm. in that conversation. So totally. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, it really is like the one lesson. And it's like, 
And the trigger for me sometimes is when I feel like I need to tell someone something and like slow down. My friend used to say, like, conflict is what happens or bad conflict is what happens when someone wants to be heard so much that they stop listening. And what would it be like to be that other person? Like, what if this is actually a really good young person who's just trying to tell you something? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Oh, this is so good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What fun. Thank you so much, Duncan. Oh, no. Total pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to omniwinproject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now, and we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.